Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. There may be no historical event that's more memorable to Texans than the Battle of the Alamo, when Davy Crockett and a band of rebels went down in a blaze of glory, fighting for freedom and independence from Mexico. Although the popular version of events owes more to fantasy than reality, and even as the United States is undergoing a sweeping reassessment of our racial history, Texas seems more determined than ever to reinforce the myth that the Alamo was the cradle of Texas liberty. A new book co-authored by three Texas writers, Brian Burrow, Chris Tomlinson, and Jason Stanford, urges us to reconsider what we know or, or think we know about the Alamo. Forget the Alamo, the rise and fall of an American myth is published by Penguin Press, and I'm very pleased to welcome Brian Burrow to our show now. Hello. Leonard, how are you doing? I'm okay. I'm so glad you're here. It's a fascinating book. Uh, wasn't Texas just one of the states you grew up in? Also, Tennessee, like Davy Crockett and New Jersey? Like Crockett, I moved uh, about, <laughs> uh, for, at an early age from, uh, from Tennessee to Texas, where I grew up, spent 35 wonderful years in the New York, uh, New Jersey area, and have now come back to Texas. How were you taught Texas history when you were growing up? Uh, in Texas, everybody takes it. Mandatory Texas history in seventh grade, usually by someone with the first name of Coach. Um, mm. And, you know, by and large, you get what we call the heroic Anglo version of Texas history. That is that Jim Bowie and William Travis and Davy Crockett were fighting for their freedom against Mexican oppression. And, and, um, and doesn't the Texas State Board of Education require that school children be taught that his heroic version of Alamo uh, history? They, they actually go further, Leonard. They, they require that teachers uh, uh, teach that each individual uh, defender of the Alamo, all 180 some odd of them, were in fact, quote, heroic. What is Governor Greg Abbott's 1836 project to promote patriotic education? This is one of those kind of head palming. I can't believe anyone is doing this in the 21st century bits of legislation that sometimes float through Texas. Uh, but in a nutshell, Governor Abbott's uh, legislation uh, proposes that um, Texas school children be uh, taught the heroic, uh, patriotic version of Texas history, specifically that with no references to the fact that one of the main reasons that the Texians, the, the American colonists in Mexico back in 1835 revolt, revolted was um, because Mexican the Mexican government, which was abolitionist, wanted to take away their slaves. Um, similarly, following in uh, the wake of the Alamo and the revolution, there was a huge kind of ethnic cleansing of the uh, uh, Mexican-Americans who lived here for what, going on 400 years. And the new legislation would specifically exclude any teaching of that as well. Now, so uh, do Texas Texans actually believe that American colonists revolted against Mexico because they were being uh, oppressed? Yes, <laughs> that is the accepted version of history as it has been understood uh, in Texas for, what, 180 years now? Um, mm. If you suggested anything else for a long time, you were kind of looked on as a liberal slash radical kook. Um, it's really only been in the last 40 years 
that um, academic scholarship has pretty much wholeheartedly rejected the, the legend of the Alamo and the legend of the Texas Revolt and began to look at a more complex version of history uh, that includes slavery, that includes everything that happened against the, the, the Tejanos. And our book, Forget the Alamo, really in some ways builds on all this academic scholarship to try to get a mainstream audience to reconsider some of these kind of hallowed ideas. When Mexico won its independence from Spain in 1821, wasn't Texas part of its territory? It was. Um, so why did many settlers from the United States move there? Well, it, it was very simple. Uh, uh, it, the best way to make money if you lived in the American South uh, during the 18 teens and 20s was cotton. Cotton was, um, prices were skyrocketing. It was being sold across the world, making clothes out of it across the world. But the best land, uh, much of the best land had been bought up. And yet here was this vast, practically a wilderness in Texas that had prime cotton land. So the colonists who went to Texas in the 1820s and 1830s by and large, either wanted to farm cotton or wanted to sell goods and services to those who would uh, farm cotton, um, which is why, of course, slavery was integral um, to early Texas. Many Southerners would not immigrate to Texas, to the Mexican province of Texas, without assurances from the so-called father of Texas, Stephen F. Austin, that in fact their slaves um, would be safe. Would it have been economically viable to grow cotton without the use of slaves? Not, not, not with the knowledge base that Southern Americans had back in the day. The fact is, as odious as it may be to say it, they didn't know any other way um, to farm cotton except with slaves. And so, you know, by the, you know, in the first three or four years that the that American colonists uh, go in in, uh, you know, after three or four years, one in four human beings um, in the new Texas colony are enslaved. Now, you uh, mentioned that the early settlers were called Texians, and of course the, uh, the Texans of Spanish origin were Tejanos. Well, why did the Texians form a provisional government if they were in another, some other country? Well, the provisional government only happened after the revolt about 15 years later. For oh. most of the colony's uh, existence, um, the American colonists were wholly uh, sub, you know, subservient to Mexican law. Um, so um, they were, you know, they were subject to the whims of a rotating series of Mexican governments, uh, some who, that wanted a very strong central government, some that wanted a weak federal government that would allow the state of Coahuila and Texas to continue slavery. It was a constant battle between the colonists and the Mexican government about slavery. Every time some new Mexican emperor or prime minister would say, that's it, no more slaves, the Texans would start to pack up and leave. And almost always the Mexicans would give in, give in and say, OK, one more year, two more years, this type of thing. And finally, in the 1830s, the Texans put away their suitcases and pretty much took out their guns. Wasn't the Alamo an old Spanish mission in San Antonio? It was. It had been a mission going back to, gosh, I know I should know this off the top of my head, but to the 1700s, ministering to Native Americans as well as the locals. Um, it was, it, ironically, given that it's gone down uh, uh, for the battle that happened there, it was not a conventional fort by any means. It was um, a wide, you know, it was 
what, a, almost a mile around uh, and, uh, you know, open to the air, uh, didn't have a lot of the things that any type of fort ought to, ought to have. So as a place to defend, it was almost indefensible. So why were the, the Texians led by James Bowie and William Travis garrisoned at the Alamo in 1836? Well, ultimately in 1835, uh, a bunch of hotheads, sometimes called the War Dogs, spearheaded by this fella, William Travis, who would ultimately emerge as the commander at the Alamo, um, uh, attacked a Mexican uh, outpost, took a bunch of uh, Mexican uh, soldiers hostage. And when the Mexican government, as one might expect, marched the small army into Texas, uh, attempting to arrest Travis and those who had done this, uh, the Texas revolt sprung up uh, to oppose it. And after an initial campaign in December of 1935, the Texians managed to de to defeat this small uh, army that had, had marched into Texas, and they took control of, Sa of San Antonio, at which point there were no more Mexican soldiers left in Texas, and the Texans kind of sat back and opened the bottle of tequila and took it easy, mm -hmm. which is why two months later, um, you know, some 180 of them were, were still laying around the Alamo, really not too worried about any type of secondary invasion when uh, the president of Mexico, Santa Ana himself, uh, appeared outside San Antonio and uh, trapped them in the Alamo. And that siege lasted 13 days? It did. Why so long? Well, uh, it, 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 it took a while just for Santa Ana to set up his siege guns for him to mark to, to inch them in closer and closer uh, to to begin to reduce the walls so that the inevitable attack would be easier. The walls were about 12 feet high um, and to get his men who had just, you know, who had just come all the way in across the desert from Mexico some time to get ready uh, for the onslaught. So it took about two weeks. And what happened on the last day? Uh, you mean you mean uh, the, the day of the attack? Yeah. Did the yeah, Texans the fight to the last man, or did many of them flee? Uh, well, the Texans already knew because Santa Ana had flown the red flag that no prisoners would be taken, and yet that morning uh, at dawn, uh, even though the you know the the Mexicans had been surrounding for thirteen days, for some reason Travis did not either. He didn't post. Uh, people outside the gates uh, to warn him or those people were killed by the oncoming Mexicans because the Mexicans attacked uh, by surprise in mass. Uh, roughly, I'm trying to remember my numbers, uh, 600 Me Mexican soldiers um, attacking this this open air mission defended by about 100, 180, 200 uh, Texians. It should have been a walkover, you know, given the numbers. But unfortunately, the ladders that the Mexican soldiers had built to scale the walls, most of them were either dropped or they didn't support the weight of the soldiers. So there's this massive building up of Mexican soldiery at the base of the walls. It was like a Who concert. Um, and the Mexican soldiers had to physically scale the walls under the uh, uh, under fire from the Texans. But in the end, numbers won out. There were just too many Mexicans, uh, too many Mexican soldiers. Um, they ultimately uh, stormed the fort successfully, uh, killed all, almost all the Texians in incredible hand-to-hand uh, -hand fighting. Um, you know, one of the myths has always been that, and this is reported pretty much by every 
book ever written by an Anglo historian that the Texans did fight to a man, fight to their death, uh, defending their posts inside the walls. We now know from Mexican accounts, in fact, somewhere between a third and perhaps as many as half the defenders of the Alamo actually fled their posts as they were being overrun and attempted to make uh, make make their way to safety by by leaving the walls. Nobody's really saying that this was anything like cowardice. It was just simply a fact that they were being overrun and to to stand where you were would be to be killed. So many of them uh, broke and ran where they were run down and killed by Mexican lancers in the open ground. Now, the, the most famous person to die in the Battle of Alamo was was Davy Crockett. Why was he more famous for killing bears than for representing Tennessee in the U.S. House of Representatives? Well, Crockett, like, somewhat like Jim Bowie, was famous in his day. He was certainly the most famous man who was in Texas at the time. Um, Crockett had two types of fame, Leonard. There was his political fame. Uh, you know, he was a congressman from Tennessee until he wasn't, until he was voted now for office. But his he, far he lost his reelection. Fame, yeah. Uh, the his far greater fame was due to a series of plays and books um, that set him up as this kind of corn pone frontier philosopher, kind of a Will Rogers of his day. Uh, Crockett had used that fame to catapult himself into Congress. When that act got old, he was elected. He was um, he his he was not able to be reelected. And like a lot of people, including his one time peer, Sam Houston, he immigrated to Texas not to go fight the Mexican army by any means, but because everybody in, in the western uh, part of the U.S., especially in the southwest, kind of believed that at some point. Um, Texas was this ripe apple that was going to fall from the tree of the Mexican nation. And whoever was there to pick it up uh, would be able to be, I don't know, president of the country uh, uh, or, or something like that. And certainly uh, Crockett immigrated with his eye on some type of second act, uh, which he hoped would be some type of public office. When did he arrive at the Alamo? Oh, gosh, I, 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 I want to say he was only there for about six weeks. Hmm. Uh, and it's funny, the, many of the men, because he was so famous, many of the men wanted him to be uh, the, the leader of the garrison. And he was like, no, 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 no. I just want to be a private. And so he served and ultimately died as a private. Isn't there some controversy about the circumstances of his death? Did, did he go down fighting or did he surrender before he was executed? In fact, that was really the first, the, the circumstances of Crockett's death were the first great um, controversy of Alamo history, if you will. And this dates, uh, the controversy uh, erupted with a book that was published in the mid-1970s. And that really began the whole process that Forget the Alamo writes about, this, this, the rise of what we call revisionist Alamo history, revisionist Texas history. The controversy involving Crockett was funny, because if you go back to original accounts, all the way back in the 1830s, it was generally accepted that Crockett had surrendered uh, along with six other Texans and had been executed. In fact, in those accounts, that was often held up as evidence of Santa Ana's barbarity. But a funny thing happened in the 1950s when Crockett, thanks to a new Disney television series of mm -hmm. Disney television movies, became you know a, a household name. He became this this sense of a, this this symbol of American values. This sense of Americans fighting against worldwide uh, communism. 
when that happened, you suddenly see a lot of authors begin to get a little uh, a little wary about saying that Davy Crockett would ever uh, uh, surrender to the dastardly Mexicans. And so you get this new sense brought to you by Disney and then by the John Wayne movie, The Alamo, where Crockett famously goes down fighting with old Betsy, that Crockett died in his place heroically. In fact, according to every Mexican account that addresses this, Crockett um, surrendered and was executed. I, I don't think that there are any academics out there today who would dispute that. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Brian Burrow, who is co-author, along with Chris Tomlinson and Jason Stanford, of Forget the Alamo, The Rise and Fall of an American Myth. It is published by Penguin Press. Well, Walt Disney... Uh, was convinced that the story of Davy Crockett would encourage traditional American values like self-sufficiency and individual liberty. Um, was the uh, the 50s TV series starring Fess Parker more successful than Disney had anticipated? Oh, my goodness. It was, it, you know, it went viral before viral was even a thing. <laughs> it was, you know, it defined a whole generation of little American boys who wanted to grow up to be Davy Crockett. Leonard, until that point, uh, the Crockett legend and the Alamo legend were, you know, kind of marginal uh, episodes in, in, in U.S. history. Uh, the Alamo was still kind of a Texas thing, but the massive success of the, uh, of the, the Disney movies and the Disney series and then of the John Wayne movie in 1960 really took the Alamo from this regional entity to first a national and then a national uh, moment. Um, and then certainly the fact that Lyndon, Bay John Lyndon Baines Johnson, a massive Alamo fan himself since boyhood, uh, then took over the White House during the 1960s. He used to love to uh, tell uh, sprout poetry about the Alamo at state dinners. Those were really the three events that, that, that turned the Alamo heretofore a little known regional symbol into a real uh, a real uh, uh, moment of international significance. How profitable was the licensing for the sale of things like coonskin caps and other Crockett paraphernalia? I know I know I should be able to tell you the fact of that's on page 360 because I know we report it, but I mean it was. It, you know, Crockett memorabilia was the biggest um, uh, fashion and memorabilia craze, um, you know, in modern American history, probably until the Beatles came along 10 years mm -hmm. later. And, uh, you mentioned John Wayne, who was another ardent communist, drew parallels between the Battle of the Alamo and the Cold War. Is that why he decided to produce, direct and star in that three hour, 12 million dollar epic called the Alamo? In yeah, this was, John, many people may not know that Wayne was not just the star of the movie. He was the producer. He was the driving force behind getting that movie made. And he didn't want it made merely as an entertainment. It was, for Wayne, a political statement. He was in the forefront of America in the 50s who believed that America was, you know, uh, falling away from traditional values, from what sometimes are called family values. And he wanted... Uh, to put out a, me uh, a message of heroism, of self-reliance, uh, a story that, 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 that would make Americans appreciate freedom and, and democracy. 
It also happened to be that the movie was to coincide with the 1960 presidential campaign, and John F. Kennedy represented everything that John Wayne hated. Uh, he loved Richard Nixon and sincerely believed, as much as you may think this is just crazy hoopla from some author, sincerely believed that this movie would swing the presidential election to Richard Nixon. It, of course, did not. How is his portrayal of Davy Crockett different from Fess Parker's? You know, I think um, the, the, the Parker is much more developed. You have a much more of a sense of his life um, in Tennessee, the totality. You know, the, the thing with the Parker is that he's just so utterly earnest and, and I won't say somber, but all, almost humorless. And Wayne, Wayne's Crockett was more of a what, we, what we'd call down here a good old boy, um, you know, hard drinking, hard fighting type. Uh, so there was significant overlap in the two characters, but um, Wayne's was uh, Wayne's was the less popular. Certainly, the movie you know was not a massive commercial hit, but I think culturally it, it was a real hit um, between uh, between the Disney Crockett and the Wayne Crockett. Uh, you know, the uh, an entire movement of what's called Alamo heads that is an Alamo hobbyist community arose and endures to this day. Well, the Alamo received seven Oscar nominations, but only one for best sound. <laughs> I don't yeah, know if that it, reveals it, it, anything. It, to I think it. a lot of a lot of people uh, will tell you that it was a gorgeous looking movie uh, um, and uh, a fairly historically accurate in terms of the arms and the Alamo itself. But the characterizations of the individuals are pretty fanciful. Now, you mentioned Jim Bowie being the other famous uh, Alamo character. Wasn't he a smuggler of illegal African slaves? You know, Jim Bowie is about the most unlikely American or Texas hero you could you could have. You know, in Texas to this day, the Anglo, the traditional Anglo-centric narrative celebrates Bowie as this kind of Steve McQueen-like figure, a figure of daring brought down by booze and, and poor choices. In fact, uh, we know Bowie, who grew up in Louisiana and rose to his own level of fame thanks to a duel in 1827 in which he killed a fellow or two with this massive knife that became actually far more famous than he, the Bowie knife. Um, we know that Bowie began his uh, career as a, biz a frontier businessman with his brother smuggling illegal African slaves from Texas when Texas was kind of wild and untamed into uh, Louisiana, where they would be sold at a massive pro uh, 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 profit in New Orleans. And then they engage in a series of land frauds. That, that, but the, re the real story, though, was this massive land fr uh, fraud that he launched in northern Louisiana, uh, in which he forged uh, dozens, if not over 100 documents to temporarily at least take possession of thousands of acres of land. All this came to an end thanks to a series of federal investigations that all but that, that just prompted Bowie to do the whole the whole thing again in Arkansas, at which point a second series of investigations um, suggested to Bowie, you know, it might be a good time to immigrate to Texas at a time when it was it was kind of a truism that if you were coming to Texas, you were fleeing something. Bowie was literally fleeing something. He washed up in San Antonio, uh, married the daughter of one of the town's richest men. And, uh, you know, had a nice life in which the uh, his new father-in-law bank uh, bankrolled all sorts of 
uh, ill-gotten uh, business ventures that never really went anywhere. And by the time of the Texas Revolt in 1835, it's probably an overstatement to say that Bowie was a drunk on the streets of San, San Antonio. His wife had died in a cholera epidemic, but he was a significant figure of fun. They called him the Tejanos in San Antonio. They called him Jim Bowie the braggart. Well, he had become a Mexican citizen along with marrying the, the Mexican wife. But what was his role as the uh, commander of the volunteer forces at the Alamo? Well, he had a lot of roles, Leonard. Uh, Bowie was probably uh, the most heralded fighting man in Texas. And frankly, uh, history suggests that that was um, that that was accurate. In fact, that he was a heck of a fighter in just about every type of um, a military uh, uh, clash before the Alamo, he was um, just a heck of a fighter. Um, he then took over um, as the uh, commander of the volunteers um, uh, at the Alamo, many of whom had immigrated to get free land and sign up in the, in, uh, to, to defend Texas. And then, but a second group uh, on a more or less official army of the new Texas army showed up led by William uh, Barrett Travis. And these two groups of men wanted to uh, report to their own commanders. And so they did for, there was a period of time where there were kind of two separate into the military entities inside the fort. Uh, and that ended only when after a colossal multi-day drunk, Bowie got very sick. Uh, it's still to this day often debated uh, what he got sick with, uh, I think some people think cholera. Uh, but at the, by the time that Santa Ana showed up, Bowie was on a bed, uh, 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 unable to uh, get vertical, much less fight. And all evidence is that's how he died. And and Travis, uh, the claims are that he he drew a line in the sand with his sword to encourage his men to join him in defending the Alamo. Is there any truth to that? Uh, in a word, no. Uh, this is the most fanciful of the, and, and probably enduring, of the Alamo legends. This idea that Travis called the men, uh, you know, on the eve of the, uh, the Mexican onslaught, called the men together in the plaza, drew this line in the sand, and said, all those who will fight for me cross this line. And, of course, mm -hmm. they all did. Uh, in fact, we know that this was, uh, there, there, this was made up uh, I want to say 32 years later by a gentleman, uh, an amateur historian uh, who lived in East Texas, uh, who claimed uh, that he'd heard it from a man who had escaped the Alamo. Um, we know that the man that he claimed to talk to uh, existed. We don't know that he uh, fought at the Alamo. There's no evidence that he did fight at the Alamo. And there's also no evidence that Travis ever drew a line in the sand. And so I, you know, this has this story has been dismissed pretty much ever since it first floated in the 1880s, and yet it was just it's so connected with a note in the Texas soul, where Texans um, so desperately wanted to believe that the people, the men who had died at the Alamo, had died for something, as opposed to what actually happened, which is they just failed to heed the warnings of Santa Ana's advance. They got trapped there, and then they had no choice but to fight to their deaths. Um, so the line in the sand myth allowed Texans, generations of Texans, and still many to this day, to believe that these men were actually making a choice to fight for their freedom, to fight for something meaningful, 
when in fact it's hard to find anything that they were that they were fighting for that was meaningful. Didn't Travis write letters to request help, and and why didn't Sam Houston send uh, the the reinforcements that uh, he asked for? Travis was many things, uh, but probably his great his great talent was as a, a PR man, as a letter writer. He wrote these incredibly eloquent uh, uh, appeals to Houston and to other members of the uh, provisional government, uh, pleading for reinforcements. Um, and they're beautiful letters, uh, but they are um, examples of you know of of, eight, uh, of spin eighteen thirty six style. You know, to Travis, he was fighting against brown-skinned mongrel hordes for American freedom. He believed he was in the second act of the American Revolution. Houston, all evidence suggests, first off, really didn't believe he was in that much a danger. Just really couldn't believe that Santa Ana would come. Then when he did come, he didn't really believe he was there. And then when he realized he was there, he did try to get some uh, uh, reinforcements to come, uh, a column led by a James Fannin, uh, famously set out, and unfortunately it was very cold, and uh, they had to turn back. Um, but, you know, Travis uh, wrote all these letters over 13 days, and I want to say they received a grand total of, what, one little one little group of maybe 24 reinforcements, I'm forgetting the exact number, from the town of Gonzales. Now, Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana led the Mexican forces that won at the Alamo. Was he a good military leader, and uh, how effective was he later as, as the president of Mexico? Santa Ana, by the standards of the day, was an effective military leader. Um, you know, generations of American school children have grown up believing that he was the great Mexican boogeyman, you know, a tyrant, you know, the Voldemort of Mexico, if you will. And the fact is, it's other than the fact that, um, as was the process during those times, he tended not to take a lot of prisoners on the battlefield, especially when international law allowed him to execute those who were attempting to illegally take uh, Mexican lands. Uh, in that regard, he was you know, certainly a, a tough-minded military man. I think most people, most historians would tell you he didn't have a lot of appetite for civilian uh, management. He tended to uh, bring in a, a, a rotating series of number two men uh, who would do that for him. Um, Santa Ana was a military man. He was raised in the Spanish army and then into the Mexican army and really loved life on a military campaign more than anything. Um, well, how did he was, happen to be exiled to Staten Island later? Uh, I know of a, vi a visit there. I, do I don't believe he was, he was exiled there, oh. but I have to say I am not an expert on Santa Ana's later life. <laughs> I will say that the Texas campaign was not his finest moment, obviously. The battle at the Alamo was pretty ham-handed, and then, and then barely six weeks later, he is utterly surprised by what should have been an inferior force led by Sam Houston and defeated whole, wholeheartedly at the Battle of San Jacinto, which paves the way for Texas independence. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. In the southern part of Texas, in the town of San Antonio, is a fortress all in ruins that the weeds have overgrown. 
You may look in vain for crosses and you'll never see a one But sometimes between the setting and the rising of the sun You can hear a ghostly bugle as the men go marching by You can hear them as the answer to that roll call in the sky we're back with Brian Burrow. We're talking about Forget the Alamo, the rise and fall of an American myth published by Penguin Press that he wrote with uh, two friends, Chris Tomlinson, a columnist for the Houston Chronicle, and Jason Stanford, who's a political consultant. How did the three of you come up with this idea? And how did you divide the research and the writing? Well, it, it's funny. Uh, it, the, the birth was easy. The execution was not uh, the idea was actually Chris's. We were at one of our, we, we used to have breakfast every Sunday morning on South Congress Avenue in Austin. And Chris was talking about one of his recent uh, columns in the Houston Chronicle. And it was about the Alamo and, and how everything, as Chris told us memorably that morning, everything you think you know about the Alamo, I can prove is wrong. And I, I couldn't, I, I, you know, I, I was 58-year-old uh, Texas-raised uh, Anglo who didn't know any of this. And I think what really turned my head was when he talked about how the conventional um, Anglo-centric legend has been used um, to systematically oppress uh, Tejanos for 180 years. That really got my attention. And at some point, I remember I, I, I slapped my hand down on the desk and said, that's a that's a book. And Leonard, five days later, we had a contract. At the end of that same breakfast, I uh, and I said, and you know, there's only one name for this. Forget the Alamo. It, it has to be. And, and two years later, now we, we have a book. Um, it's been out to a, a lot of notice. And as you know, and as you probably have noted, we've uh, uh, we just had our biggest uh, appearance down here canceled by the lieutenant governor yes. who uh, who does not agree with uh, with the, the new ideas that we that we are attempting to circulate. Uh, well, it's interesting that uh, they complain about uh, woke thinking, and yet uh, here they are banning this uh, any discussion of this book. Although the the title of one of your previous books, "Barbarians at the Gate," also might have worked for this book. Uh, the, it, it, it well could have. Uh, it's. Um, Texas's uh, capital is named after Sam Houston. Did the defense of the Alamo allow enough time for Sam Houston to assemble his army? And, well, and did well, he I, start using the slogan, remember the Alamo, as a rallying cry sometime after that? Quick correction. Uh, the, our capital is Austin and is named after... I'm sorry, it's Austin. I've been to Texas many times. I mean, the biggest but, city. In fact, I have been to the Alamo, and uh, what I was struck by was just how hip the area is other than the Alamo. The, the Culinary Institute of America has a headquarters nearby. Uh, uh, San Antonio is one of the great undiscovered uh, country uh, uh, cities of uh, of the country, I believe. I just think mm-hmm. it's a it's a great place. It's the beautiful. Itself, uh, you know, is has been in bad in in dire need of an upgrade for many years. It's kind of this dingy little chapel and a tiny museum. That they're trying to spruce it up now. But to get to your original question, you know, the 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 reason for the Alamo, the reason that the Alamo. Uh, uh, defenders were regarded as heroic is because of the myth that they held up Santa Ana long enough for Sam Houston to raise this army and defeat the Mexicans at San Jacinto. In fact, there's absolutely no reason, there's no historical basis for this belief at all. At most, 
Um, they delayed Santa Ana all of four days, during which you know Houston had barely even begun to get his army together. So, uh, but where the Alamo was crucial, where the legend, the emerging legend, was crucial, was in uh, instilling morale into Houston's troops. You know, you can make the argument, and I think there's something to it, that the Alamo was the single most important thing that Houston Al- that Houston's men had. It really uh, when they charged at um, when they charged at uh, San Jacinto, they were yelling, "Remember the Alamo!" and "Remember Goliad!" A separate uh, massacre of Texas uh, soldiers uh, in the town of Goliad. And you know, you can argue that the story of the Alamo has really never been more important than it was that day at, at San Jacinto. Um, but I've always wondered why. I've always wondered why the Battle of San Jacinto isn't celebrated instead of the Alamo, since it's the battle that uh, the uh, the Americans won. It's because of Travis's letters. It's because Travis's letters m- speak so movingly um, to, to American values of, of, of freedom um, um, and associated values um, that, in fact, really, as I said before, it's really had much more to do with uh, Travis's spin than it did with the facts of the, the Texas revolt itself. Did Andrew Target, the uh, author of Seeds of Empire, uh, was he the one who linked the issue of slavery with the enormous wealth creation that happened in Texas? Anybody who is interested in the subject and anyone who, who likes Forget the Alamo, the, uh, the next book to pick up is Target's Seeds of Empire. It's an academic mm. book, uh, came out in 2015. Uh, that really shows the importance of cotton and cotton-based slavery and that economic mo- model to the Texans and to their resistance of Mexico. It was not the first, however. Um, you know, for about 150 years, um, academics, and especially Texas academics, kind of tiptoed around the whole slavery issue. And it really wasn't until the 1880s, and especially the, the, the excuse me, the 1980s, especially the 1990s, that um, academics like Randolph Candle, uh, Campbell and Paul D. Lack began to at least explore the idea that slavery and the fact and the tensions between the American colonists and the abolitionist governor, government of Mexico might have had something to do with the reason that they were uh, fighting. Um, and Torgut, I think, has really taken um, that argument. Uh, not as he's he's advanced it further down the field, and we're attempting to build on his arguments. And, and slavery lasted in, in Texas until the very last day. Yeah, it, it lasted until the end of the Confederacy. In fact, yeah. uh, for 10 years, Texas was an independent country. And, you know, the Republic of Texas was probably, and I think my, my colleague Chris, Chris Tomlinson can argue this um, uh, persuasively, was probably the most militant slavery uh, 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 republic in world history. I mean, you there like literally you could not be a black man in the there was no such thing as free blacks in Texas. If you were if you got caught black black in Texas, you were going to be enslaved. Does it matter if the popular public view of the facts about the Alamo are all wrong? What's the harm in Texans simply embracing a myth? Well, you'd expect me to argue the intellectual harm that somehow we are doing damage to the truth and to the truth of history. And I do believe those things. But in this case, there's actually a much more tangible harm. And that is that the, the Alamo myth um, has been used 
to kind of beat down Mexican-Americans for almost two centuries in America. You know, the type of thing where, you know, the big Anglo guy, uh, you know, hits, you know, punches, punches a little Mexican guy on the arm and says, remember the Alamo. Just remember the Alamo has been used to put down generations of Mexican-Americans. We talked to so many Mexican-Americans for the book that really say, you know, up until seventh grade, they believed they were Americans. They believed in the Statue of Liberty and the White House and the president and all that. And then they learn about the Alamo. Then they go on a tour of the Alamo often. And after that, everything changes. Their Anglo schoolmates all say, you killed Davy Crockett. And um, it's been, you know, a source, a, a real sore point for generations of Tejanos. And by and large, to an amazing degree, this is not known. It's not appreciated by the, the Anglos in Texas. It's, it's just not um, for, for any number of reasons. We, we couldn't find any of our friends just anecdotally who even were aware of this. Um, and so, yes, we're keenly aware that as three middle-aged white guys, we're not the ideal messengers for that. <laughs> On the other hand, um, we wouldn't be doing our job if we didn't put it in our book and display it. And to our immense relief, uh, LULAC and an, any number of leading uh, Mexican-American um, uh, leaders in Texas have um, endorsed the book. People have they some of them have even protested at the Alamo holding the book. So that's been somewhat gratifying. Although not the governor or the lieutenant governor. What was what's been called the second battle of the Alamo involving, was it the thing that involved Clara Driscoll and Adina Amelia de Zavala? It was. The second, uh, the second battle of the Alamo took place in the 1890s and early 1900s between two women who sought to save the Alamo site. The, the instigator of all this was Adina de Zavala, whose father had been uh, vice president of the Republic of, of Texas. He resigned shortly afterward. She was a school teacher in San Antonio and had a real sense of historical preservation. This was at a time, 50 years after the battle, when the Alamo itself had literally fallen into ruins. Nobody was celebrating anything there. The anniversary was ignored. And she just thought that that's just sadder than sad. However, she was not a rich woman. She needed some money to get this going. So she partnered with a woman who was probably from the wealthiest family in Texas at the time, Clara Driscoll, who was a young woman, 19 or 20 at the time, um, who was kind of idle, searching for direction. She found one by joining partners with Adina uh, to save the Alamo. Unfortunately, in time, their interests um, separated. Adina wanted to- They had to, a falling out. Yeah, they had a, fall, a huge falling out. Adina wanted to save one building, the so-called Long Barracks, where most of the finding took place. Clara, who wanted to uh, turn the Alamo site into a park on the order of something, the things she'd seen in Paris and London, wanted to save the chapel, uh, the building that you see there to this day. Um, obviously, yeah. very long story short, Clara Driscoll, the wealthy woman, the wealthy Anglo, uh, won out and created the Alamo um, that endures to this day, but uh, as a, just as a, a detail, I think most people, many listeners, may think that the Alamo is that building you go see. In fact, it's not. That's just the church. That was just one of any number of buildings that lined the Alamo compound, all of which was torn down by Mexican soldiers and then what remained of it destroyed to build downtown San Antonio. 
And uh, a group called the Daughters of the Republic of Texas developed. Is that similar to the Daughters of the Confederacy? Very much. It's the Texas version of that. And they kind of became Clara Driscoll's kind of a paramilitary junior league. If you were a kid like I was and you visited the you visited the Alamo, you always remember the daughters as the women who shushed you all the time or threw you out if you asked impertinent questions. These were, you know, the caricature of the daughters was back in the day certainly was of uh, humorless old women who were uh, there to uh, uh, police and keep everyone quiet because they considered this a hallowed sh- shrine. And we have a fun chapter two at the last of the book where we chronicle their their uh, their downfall, um, uh, which is kind of a funny story. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI in New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Brian Burrow, co-author along with Chris Tomlinson and Jason Stanford of Forget the Alamo, The Rise and Fall of an American Myth. It is published by Penguin Press. Um, now, you mentioned Lyndon Johnson. Didn't he invent relatives who died at the Alamo? Uh, wouldn't that have been self-defeating for him to draw up support for the Vietnam War by invoking the Alamo? You'd think. No, but look, every time every time a certain type of uh, uh, American conflict, every time any type of American conflict arises from Vietnam to Iraq, there's going to be someone somewhere who starts to invoke the Alamo. LBJ did it all the time. He wanted Americans... Uh, to defend Vietnam the way they had defended the Alamo, never mind that, you know, we didn't actually win either one. Um, yes, uh, both Johnson, ended in disaster. Johnson had a bad case of what we in Texas call Alamo fever, meaning he was so deep into the story that he actually invented, a, I believe it was a great-grandfather uh, who fought there. And, of course, when uh, inquiring Washington journalists tried to learn more, they found out, in fact, that there was no uh, uh, there was no such relative, um, but it was indicative of how deeply Johnson believed in the myth, how invested he was um, that he would make up a relative who, who didn't quite serve there. Now, interest in the Alamo is global. Why has an English musician, Phil Collins, compiled the world's largest collection of memorabilia related to the Alamo? You know, Leonard, this just stops people. Every time you bring up the name Phil Collins, people who are kind of eating a ham sandwich or doing their laundry on the, over in the corner of the room kind of turn their head and say, did he say Phil Collins? And yes, it's, it's that Phil Collins, the drummer, the guy who sings. Mm-hmm. Phil Collins, as, he, as a boy in England, watched the Fess Parker, uh, Davy Crockett, and then the John Wayne, and became utterly fascinated uh, by the Alamo. Uh, as, uh, you know, as a, a, mus- a traveling musician, uh, while with Genesis... Genesis, every time they were in Texas, he would make sure that he could get to Alamo to tour it. Long story short, by around 2005, when he's older, he has time on his hands, he begins uh, collecting Alamo-related memorabilia. Everything from, you know, belts supposedly worn by William Travis to a Bowie knife owned by Bowie to hundreds of letters to cannonballs from San Jacinto, you name it, Phil Collins... Collected it so much so that by 2014, he had what was universally acknowledged uh, to be the world's largest collection of Alamo memorabilia. But you use the word supposedly. Uh, Did he buy many of them without documentation? Does it seem likely that many items are of dubious, if not fraudulent, providence? 
we did not go into the. We thought this book would. This book to us was was a historiography. It was writing the history yeah. and the idea, the the evolution of the message. We didn't realize that we we're going to end up writing about Phil Collins' Alamo collection, but we did. We got a tip that much of the collection suffered from at least um, weak provenance, and at worst, uh, many of the most prominent, a number of the most prominent items, in fact, appeared to be fake. And we interviewed dozens of experts. Uh, who basically said that Collins Collection, which is now the reason this matters, is Collins Collection has been donated or lent to the state of Texas to be the centerpiece of a new museum in San Antonio. Hmm. Uh, unfortunately, a I rather sure controversial one because of its it, cost. It, it has been controversial because of the cost, because of whose story you're going to tell. You're going to tell a straight the straight Anglo legend, or you're going to try to make it more inclusive, as they say. And then we, our book introduced um, a new problem for that, and that is that the centerpiece of this $400 museum does not appear to be the, the Collins Collection, what it's cracked up to be. And so that's been a little bit of a, a controversy down in Texas, uh, down here in Texas the last couple of months. Now, isn't the current commissioner of the Texas General Land Office, which is uh, going to uh, do that museum, George P. Bush, Jeb's son? That's correct. Uh, so the politician who's in the crosshairs, if you will, is George P. Bush, uh, a young politician who is most notable for being almost utterly opaque in his public statements um, and his you know, unwillingness to um, to interface with the likes of us uh, poor, you know, ink stained wretches. Um, he has run this general land office for a while uh, the museum. Uh, and all these plans are largely his doing, and he has now uh, announced plans to uh, uh, lead the offense and challenge uh, uh, to become the new Texas Attorney General. Now, interestingly, Native Americans have not come into the conversation at all. There were Native Americans there. Didn't Native American groups want land set aside to honor ancestors who were buried beneath Alamo Plaza during the Spanish era? Yeah, one of the thorniest problems for anyone who's wanted to do anything with the Alamo has been that for about 50 years now, we've been aware that Alamo Plaza, the large plaza in front of the Alamo, as you think, um, uh, holds something like, I don't know, 1,500, uh, basically a cemetery, a Native American cemetery of those who lived and died at the Alamo back when it was primarily a mission. And so anytime anybody's talked about digging up the plaza, uh, uh, relocating things, you have to deal with the fact um, that you have this cemetery there, and it still to this day has not really been dealt with. Uh, and so it's become kind of a chronic uh, uh, sore, sore spot in San Antonio politics. And African Americans are objecting to tearing down an old Woolworths department store across the street. It's the site of historical significance during the civil rights era. That wall, that that Walgreens used to have a oh, it was a Walgreens. Okay, used to have a law, uh, used to have a lunch counter, that was mm. one of the first places, uh, public places in San Antonio back in the day with, that would allow blacks to to eat alongside uh, whites. We, you know, we in the book, Leonard, we compare the Alamo today really to to the West Wall, to the Western Wall in Jerusalem, just as you know, uh, Jews and Muslims quarrel about the Western Wall. You know, the Alamo has become like our secular Jerusalem, where Anglos and uh, Latinos 
and Native Americans and African-Americans are all squabbling about what to do with this place that is hallowed to so many of them. Now, you mentioned earlier that you, although your book has received positive reviews of Wall Street Journal, Washington Post and others, um, some people in Texas find it threatening and uh, the uh, lieutenant governor actually uh, uh, had the event uh, your uh, scheduled appearance to host a book event last week at the Texas State History Mountain a Museum canceled. Um, I can tell you that it has uh, the book has uh, gotten a lot of Texans interested. I'm told that uh, a number of Texans are are um, will be listening into today's show. Well, hi y'all to those who are. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, this was kind of a. <laughs> It's, it's what happened last Thursday to us. It's kind of sad and embarrassing. Embarrassing if you're a Texan and then and have to live through something like this hap- happening in 21st century America. This was not just any event. This was probably going to be our biggest publicity event, um, a panel uh, that we were going to form um, at the State Museum. You, you have and, to make it quick because uh, we're pretty much out of time. I'm sorry. Well, but four finish, hours before the thought. event, the lieutenant government got in and, and canceled it. And it's sad because it's censorship. But it's happy because we sold a heck of a lot of books as a result. (laughs) A lot of Texans are interested in it as a result. My great thanks to you, Brian Burrow. Brian Burrow's co-author with Chris Tomlinson and Jason Stanford of Forget the Alamo, The Rise and Fall of an American Myth. It's published by Penguin Press. Um, Mr. Burrow's other books include Barbarians at the Gate, The Fall of R.J.R. Nabisco, and The Big Rich, The Rise and Fall of the Greatest Texas Oil Fortunes. What a pleasure it's been talking with you. Leonard, thanks, as always. And that brings us to the end of our show. Special thanks to segment producer Deborah Freeman for preparing today's interview. If you're new to this program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And there are links to our over 500 shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. WBAI continues to face major financial difficulties due to the pandemic. We we rely 100% on listener contributions, so we're asking anyone who isn't already supporting this station to become a member by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950. That's give to the number 2 WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. Why not support the programming that you turn to to learn about the latest important books or documentaries or a topic that you hadn't thought about in depth before? Do it for us. Do it for WBAI. Do it for other listeners who aren't currently in a financial position to be able to support community radio. And a particularly helpful way to contribute is to become a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. But no matter how you donate, the important thing is that you take that first step and make a tax-deductible contribution of any amount by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org. And be please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. From all of us at the show, thank you very much. We're up tomorrow. But I hope you can join us again for Friday show when publisher, editor, and author Sherry Buchanan will discuss her new book on the Ho Chi Minh Trail, The Blood Road, The Women Who Defended It, The Legacy. We'll see you then.